This morning I'm going to be looking at a few verses from the first chapter of Daniel. A number of years ago, I led a men's Bible study um, for about a year or so on Daniel, and I took that same study and sort of condensed it and used it um, at work. I led a a Bible study for a number of months um, over the lunch hour for some fellow Christians at work. And Daniel, during both of those Bible studies, challenged me in my walk in faith, in living a life of faith, in stepping out in faith. And I pray that this brief look at Daniel this morning will also do the same with you by the grace of the Spirit. Daniel, um, there are a number of themes in the book of Daniel, but two probably of the greatest themes in the book of Daniel is the theme of living by faith and the theme of God's sovereignty. These Two themes go throughout the book. They go throughout the beginning of the book when we see Daniel and his three friends face many temptations to succumb to the evil around them. And these themes are also prominent in the end of the book when we see Daniel's prophecies that come true about the coming kingdoms and the kingdoms that would conquer the land. These two truths are also, of course, applicable to us today. And the Spirit will apply these truths to our heart as we look at this. Before we read our passage this morning, let me just give you a brief history of Israel and Judah that lead up to their captivity, which is where the book of Daniel begins. Most people probably consider the time of King David as the height or the zenith or the peak of the life of Israel. During this time, under David's rule, Israel had control of the greatest amount of property that they had in their life as a nation. They had completely subdued the pagan kingdoms around them. They had either subdued them or the kingdoms were paying homage to King David and then subsequently to his son Solomon. So there was this great power that God had placed with his people in the land of Israel. And also right at the end of David's reign, his life was a life of war, both of external war with nations, but also of internal war with his own family when Absalom tried to rest the throne away from him. But at the very end of David's reign, finally Israel has a period of peace and the reign of Solomon, his son, is marked as a reign of peace with the nations that still exist around them, these nations paying homage to the kingdom of Israel. So in many ways, at least from an earthly perspective, that was a high point, um, a peak, a zenith in the life of Israel. But it didn't take long for that to start going downhill. In fact, with David's son Solomon, the history of Israel begins to go downhill. David's son Solomon begins to take many, many wives for himself. And many of the wives that he takes are from the pagan nations. And because of that, he allows the entry of idolatry and the worship of false gods into his very own house, as well as into the nation of Israel. And from that point on, Israel struggles. They'd struggled before, but especially from that point on, Israel struggles with the worship of false gods and of idols. Immediately after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes up the reign, and there's a split. There's an argument. And the nation of Israel splits into two nations. The northern kingdom was called Israel still, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And you can read about the history of Israel and Judah um, in the books of First and Second Kings and in the books of First and Second Chronicles. And you'll see there are many ups and downs in the lives of these two nations that were once one nation. Israel especially is filled with evil kings and their trajectory is largely on a straight downward trend. Judah has its ups and its downs. There are godly kings in Judah. But often these godly kings are followed, sometimes even by the son of the righteous king, with an evil king who leads Judah astray and leads Judah into idolatry. And ultimately, the trajectory of Judah, too, perhaps not as quickly, but ultimately is a downward trajectory into evilness and into idolatry. About 200 years after the two nations split, Israel finds itself being conquered by another nation. And scripture is clear that this giving over into captivity was directly from the Lord, that it was a punishment to Israel for their wanderings and for their idolatry. 136 years after Israel falls, Judah also falls. And at that point, 
the entire people of God are now in captivity under a foreign ruler, under a foreign nation, and subject to the laws of a foreign people, no longer able to follow the laws of God as they had when they were under King David or under King Solomon as a sovereign nation to themselves. Again, this is a direct punishment from God, but it's also a mercy from God. It's a mercy to the remnant of Israel. It's a mercy to those who had remained faithful to God. It's a mercy to those who had not bowed their knee to Baal or to the other idols, that God has caused them to go into captivity and eventually he will restore them from that captivity. And if you follow the history of Israel, even in the time of Christ, Israel doesn't struggle with idolatry in the same way that they struggled with idolatry in the Old Testament. Yes, the Pharisees become Pharisaical. The Pharisees trust in their own understanding of the law more than they trust in God. But the worship of physical idols and the idolatry of the gods of the other nations is largely absent after this punishment from God. So the punishment and the restoration brings out the remnant and causes God's mercy to be seen. And so we begin with Daniel. Daniel begins at this exile when the entire people of God are just beginning in captivity. This is when Judah falls, the second of the two nations falls, and now all of the people are under captivity. If you would, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. You'll find it on page 628 in the Pew Bible. We're going to focus this morning on verses 8 to 16 of this chapter, but I'd like to read the whole chapter just to get it in context. Daniel chapter 1, and this is the eternal word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then our appearance will be observed in your presence, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner, and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter 
than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. The eternal word of God the Father. Let's briefly consider the first few verses in this chapter just to get an idea of what the situation was that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah found themselves in. First of all, as I said before, it's clear from this chapter that this situation has been ordained by God. It says in verse 2, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So it's clear that this is of the Lord giving over the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, when they were captured, um, these were four young men. In fact, we might even call them boys. The commentators suggest that their ages were probably between 12 and 15 at this time. So they're junior high age boys, or perhaps freshmen or sophomores in high school at this age. They're captured by a foreign king, And they're drafted into an educational indoctrination program. The purpose of the program was to cause the greatest and brightest of the captured nations to be taught the language of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, and to be indoctrinated in the ways and customs of Babylon. This illustrates, of course, the intelligence and cunning of King Nebuchadnezzar. One of the first things he'd do when he conquered a nation was to deport all of the people of that nation to another place. And the purpose of that was to accelerate their assimilation into the culture of Babylon. They would leave the familiar places. They'd have completely new things to look at. Nothing would be familiar. The people around them would be unfamiliar. The cultures, the customs, everything would be unfamiliar. And to survive they would have to, in some ways, conform to the culture around them. They couldn't hold on to the old things. They were in a new place um, under new rulership. At the same time that he deported people, he also looked at the nation that he conquered and he took the very best, the very brightest, the best looking, the most beautiful, the most handsome of the men from these nations and he put them in a program of indoctrination in order to strengthen his own kingdom. He caused these young men to essentially become Babylonians and to work directly for him to the strength of his own kingdom. So he had a twofold purpose. First of all, cause all of the people to become as Babylon. And second of all, get the very best of them, have them work for his personal service and strengthen um, his cause and his direction in conquering further nations. Now, if we think a little bit about it, we see that this situation, while in some ways very different, is also in some ways similar to our situation here in this country. In some ways, we too have experienced cultural changes in a fairly rapid way. I don't think anyone would deny that since, say, 1960 or so, there have been changes in our country that um, have caused us as a culture to accept things that were unacceptable prior to that time and to not accept things that were the norm prior to that time. And so, in some ways, we're similar to these four men. Of course, our changes haven't been as drastic and they haven't been as sudden as those that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah faced. But nevertheless, we do have some of that in common. Notice that um, Babylon is a society that values beauty intelligence, understanding, and knowledge. If you look back at verse 4, these are the kinds of 
um, young men that he wants to place into his service. He wants young men who have no defect, who are good-looking, who are showing in intelligence, every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. Now that sounds an awful lot like our country. Our country, in many ways, makes an idol out of good looks and beauty. If you look at um, the celebrities which are in some ways worshipped by our country, they're all good-looking, they're all beautiful, they're all stunning in their appearance. We worship intelligence, we worship understanding and knowledge. Um, greater deference is given to the doctors, the lawyers, and the professors of our day than in almost any other profession because they're held up as the scientific ideal, the knowledge, the ones who carry the intelligence, the hope of the country. We also, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we also face persecution. Again, it's not to the same degree that these four faced persecution. We're not in danger for our lives here in this country. But nevertheless, we do face persecution when we refuse to bow down to the idols of our country, when we refuse to conform to all of the customs and all of the values that our society holds out as truth. We also receive persecution. So in many ways, this book, the book of Daniel, is a shining example of how to live in the world while not being of the world, as Jesus proclaimed to his disciples that we should do. Now, one more thing before we delve into our verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. I want to make a brief statement regarding um, the popular liberal view of the authorship of Daniel. Many scholars who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, in other words, they don't believe that Scripture was verbally inspired in its words by God. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture these scholars maintain that Daniel is largely a fictional account that was concocted during the time of the Maccabean Revolt in the 3rd century. Now, the Jews in the Maccabean Revolt were resisting um, being conquered by the Greeks, and these liberal scholars um, assert that this was a fictional story that was written in order to give the Jews courage to stand up against the Greeks. Those who hold to this erroneous view do so in large part because of the startling accuracy of Daniel's visions regarding the future nations. Daniel makes a number of prophecies that he receives in visions about what the future nations will be like that will come and conquer these people. There's a succession of, of nations that will conquer um, the people, and he makes startlingly accurate prophecy about this. Of course, we know why it's startlingly accurate, because it was inspired by God himself. But those who refuse to believe that God does inspire prophecy that way and that he did specifically in this book maintain that it must have been fabricated for him to know all those details. So they assert that it must have been written after the fact, looking back after the things that happened that these prophecies were written. Now, I mention this only to say that this opinion is out there, and I mention it also as a protection for you if you should run across such a theory, even if it seems like it's very logically and eloquently stated, you must not be misled by this theory. The most obvious and reliable proof that we have that this book is true and that Daniel was a real man is that the word of God itself handles it as truth, as real human history, as Daniel being a man of God. Now, to some, that would seem like circular reasoning that we're using the Bible to prove the Bible. But again, the Bible is the testimony of God through his Holy Spirit, and God himself is witness to the truth of the Bible. The Bible itself handles this as a historical fact. It's not indicated as a parable. It's not indicated in Scripture as um, some kind of poetic metaphor. There are sections of Scripture which are parables. There are poetic metaphors in Scripture. There are all kinds of types of writing, but this is written as a history. Um, and the Bible treats it that way. Ezekiel quotes God as making reference to Daniel. God makes reference to Daniel's righteousness alongside of Noah and Job. So Ezekiel the prophet quotes God referring to Daniel's righteousness. You can find that in Ezekiel 14.14 14, if you want to look that up on your own. Jesus also refers to Daniel in Matthew 24.15. He refers to the prophet Daniel by name and he refers to Daniel's prophecy concerning 
the abomination of desolation. And if you want to look that reference up, it's Matthew 24:15. So Jesus also refers to Daniel as a true and historical figure. And although it's less reliable, there is scholarship also that shows that the specific word usage that's used in Daniel would have been typical for the 6th century, in other words, around the time of Nebuchadnezzar, but would have been archaic for the 3rd century, in other words, the time of the Maccabean Revolt. So again, we have scholarship as well, although our most reliable and um, obvious proof is from Scripture itself. Always when reading commentaries about Scripture or when hearing people comment on Scripture, you must remember that Satan is constantly attempting to discredit the words of God. And despite this, we must have faith and rely upon the words in this book as the very words of God given to us to show our only hope for salvation and for the sanctification of our souls. It's part of this faith that we talk about this morning when we talk about living in faith, stepping out in faith, making up our mind to live in faith. So now let's look at the verses under consideration this morning. We begin with verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And this is the verse from which the title of the sermon comes. Daniel made up his mind. This verse teaches us that Christians must be prepared ahead of time to stand against the world. Christians must be prepared ahead of time to stand against the world. If you read through the entire book of Daniel, you'll see in a later chapter that Daniel mentions his habit of praying three times a day and facing Jerusalem while he prays. Now, when he does that, he's an older man. This is under um, King Darius the Mede, and Daniel is probably in his 70s or 80s at this point. But clearly, this habit didn't begin just then, when Daniel turned 70. This is a habit that, from the way he talks about it, is well-known among the people of that nation. It's well-known by his adversaries. In fact, that's the reason why they chose this particular habit to attack Daniel in the eyes of Darius the Mede. So this is a habit that had been going on for a long time. And very likely, this was a habit that Daniel started when he was very young, probably even before the captivity. Maybe when he was eight years old or ten years old, before King Nebuchadnezzar captured um, the people of Judah. What a blessing it is when we're young to develop godly habits of prayer and scripture reading and scripture memory. And here, I talk specifically to those um, young people that we have today, to those who are 8 years old or 10 years old or 14 or maybe 18. If you're not in the habit of praying every day, start now. Start tomorrow. Start today. Begin the godly habit of regular prayer to God in the name of Jesus Christ and you will reap rewards in your relationship with him. Of course, I speak to all of us. It's never too late to do it. It's never too late, no matter how old you are, to begin some of these godly habits. But when you're young, you have the time, you have the energy to do it, and the habit will see you through many difficult times in your life. So I exhort you young people especially, if you're not in some of these habits that I'm about to talk through, get in them now. If you're not praying every day, Start now. Start today. Pray when you get up in the morning. Your first thoughts should be of God, the blessings that he's given you, the things that you need him for during the day. Pray before bedtime and thank God for the way that he's helped you through the day and the strength that he's given you. Pray before each meal. Parents, you should allow your children um, at various times to pray for the family for the evening meal to give them the habit of doing that themselves. If you're not reading scripture every day, start now. If you haven't been in the habit at all of reading scripture on your own, maybe start with just ten verses a day. Five or ten verses, just to get yourself in the habit. You can always increase it as you go on, but establish that habit first. It's been very helpful to me to pick the same time each day so that you know you can be regular about that habit. If the time isn't the same, 
I found in my life that the reading also is very sporadic, that I don't read Scripture um, regularly. For me, I get up early before work and, and have my devotions. I read the Word of God then, and I have my time of prayer. And I found if I miss it for whatever reason, if I sleep in or I decide not to do it that morning, I very rarely get to it the rest of the day because that's my habitual time. And um, often the rest of the day is just crowded with other things. I often, because of that, find it very difficult to have regular devotions when I'm on vacation because my schedule is very different and I tend to want to sleep in when I'm on vacation rather than getting up for work. So that's always a time when I need prayer to be regular in my devotions, especially if it's an extended vacation. It's also another reason to pray for the pastors as they're gone. If you don't know where to start in your reading, my suggestion would be start in Genesis. Start at the beginning of the Bible. Or maybe start in Proverbs. That's an excellent place for a young person to begin learning the Proverbs that God gave Solomon. Or start in one of the Gospels. But start somewhere. Start with something. Also, scripture memory. If you're not involved in scripture memory in Sunday school or at home or in school where you are, start now. Pastor Bailey has exhorted us all to memorize Psalm 73 for the summer. And summer's not over. Yeah, you might be a little behind if you want to get started, but you can start memorizing Psalm 73. As a habit, as a tradition, our church memorizes a number of passages, both as a church or sometimes as smaller Sunday school groups. We memorize Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 103. We memorize Isaiah 53. We memorize Luke 2. We've memorized James chapter 1. Any of these, if you haven't memorized them, just start maybe with the beginning of it, a portion of it. Start by memorizing some of these chapters of Scripture. These godly habits are crucial for faith and for a vital relationship with God. And it was these vital habits that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had and allowed them to stand strong against the customs and the ways of the world. So Daniel is a man of godly habit, and under extreme circumstances, he makes a decision to take a stand on something out of faith. Now let's look at what he decides to take a stand on. Again in verse 8. He decides that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. He chose not to eat the rich food of the king. Now that seems a bit odd. Why did he decide to take that as the place in which he would take his stand? It seems odd to all of us. Now it might not seem odd considering that Daniel was a Jew. And one of the things the Jews are known for is their diet, the kosher laws, the laws that God gave um, for what they should eat and what they should not eat. And in fact, initially, that's probably where all of our minds go. He wants to follow the dietary laws of God. But this couldn't have been the main reason why Daniel decided to take a stand here. Because Daniel also, it's clear, he refused the wine. And it's said a number of times throughout this um, passage. In, in verse 8, he decided not to divide himself with the king's choice food or with the wine. In verse um, 16, it says, so the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink. Wine was not prohibited by scripture. So it couldn't have been the dietary laws. In fact, Daniel would have been able to keep probably the dietary laws, the kosher laws, and eat the king's food. He just would have had to set aside those things that came through that weren't kosher, that weren't allowed, and eat the other things. So why did Daniel decide to make a stand um, in this area? There are probably two likely reasons why Daniel did this. As Calvin puts it, it may be that he wanted to avoid the enticements and snares of luxury that might have deceived him. He might have recognized that by allowing himself to indulge in the king's delicacies, it was a danger that he would conform even more fully to the king's ways. In fact, it was probably the king's design with the brightest and the best to give them the best of everything so that they might see him as their provider and that they might find themselves conforming even more fully to his laws. Proverbs 23, verses 1 to 3 says this, When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. 
Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. So very likely Daniel had this proverb in his mind as he considered the king's food. Daniel may have realized that by indulging in the king's delicacies, he would be in danger of enjoying them to the point of compromising his integrity. The other main reason given for Daniel deciding to take a stand on his diet is that he likely wanted to avoid food that had been offered up to idols. Much of the food that came through the king was the very best of food and would have been the food that would have been placed on the altar of Baal or on the altar of the particular idol that the people were worshipping as an offering. And that would also include the drink as well, the wine. So the food and the wine both would have been offered up symbolically to the idol and then from there brought to the king's table and it would have been food that would have been offered up to idols. There wouldn't have been any way for Daniel to know whether indeed that food had come from the worship of idols or whether it had come from um, some other uh, source. So he decided to abstain completely from the eating of the king's food. Now let's look at another aspect of this decision. And again, this brings us back to the title of the sermon. It says here that Daniel made up his mind. He made up his mind. Again, remember, Daniel is bolstered by his godly faith and godly habits. And because of that, he comes to a decision and he makes up his mind. The words there are more literally translated, Daniel set upon his heart. He set upon his heart or he purposed in his heart. Not just making up your mind, but purposing in your heart. It's your whole being. It's, it's from the inside. This was a decision of conviction and principle. This wasn't a decision that came out of feeling or emotion or out of, the, out of the times. It was a decision that came out of Daniel's conviction for the righteousness of God. It was a thoughtful decision. It was a planned decision. It wasn't an impulsive decision. He didn't sit down at the table one day and looked at the food and said, oh, wow, I can't eat this stuff. He thought ahead of time about what it would mean to be in the king's service, and he thoughtfully and with a plan made the decision that he would not partake of the king's food. This was a decision that was made from the desire to obey God and to obey his commandments and show his love for him. Again, the words there mean from his heart, that he set upon his heart, that he purposed in his heart. It's a decision made from the heart, from Daniel's desire to please God. And also about this decision, it's not just a decision that he made, but it's a decision that he acted on. Daniel followed through on his decision. This also is a theme that's seen throughout Scripture. The Bible says that your faith is seen through your works. Your faith is seen through your works. You can't just have faith in your head, in your mind, that you have this faith that exists between your ears, but no one else ever hears about it or sees it in action. The Bible says that if your actions do not follow your thoughts, then you don't have faith or you have faith in something else. Faith without works is dead. It's a dead faith. That's what James says. So it's not just a matter that Daniel purposed in his mind and purposed in his heart, but he acted on it. He took action. He did something about it. We are all tempted by the Greek model. I am very tempted by the Greek model. And that is that the things that are real are the things that are in, in your head, the things that you believe, the things that you know, the things that you understand. Those are the real things. This is also um, the Gnostic heresy, the heresy of Gnosticism, that what really matters to God is what you believe and think and understand, not what you do. That God really doesn't care much how you respond to what you know, but just that you know what's right, that you have all your doctrine in place, that you're um, knowledgeable about the Word of God. But that's not biblical. The Bible teaches that your faith is not real until it becomes action, until you do something about it. The Bible teaches that you're not wise, even if you know in every situation what the right thing to do is, you're not wise until you do that right thing. Wisdom is not just knowing what you should do. Wisdom is doing what you should do or saying what you should say or 
refraining from doing that which you shouldn't do. So now, think about yourself for a moment. Think about yourself at work, in your family, with your friends. What stands are you taking out of conviction and with the desire to obey God? What stands are you taking against the customs and ways of the world that the world would look at and see as peculiar or odd? Is there anything that you have purposed in your heart to do for the sake of the Lord? Have you ever purposed to do something in your heart for the sake of the Lord? Just think about this for a moment. Has the Spirit been prompting you lately? And, and maybe you have. Maybe you've taken a number of steps. And if you're a believer, I hope you've taken a number of steps to step out in faith for God in many ways. But think for a moment now. Has the Spirit been prompting you recently, in the last few weeks or months, to step out in faith at work or at home or in school or with your family or with your friends? Has the Spirit been prompting you to do that? You know, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they were tested in their faith. And when they passed the test, when they responded in faith, the test wasn't over. There was another test. It wasn't gone and done with. They'd passed the test. They received 100%. Now they got their degree. No, there was another test that awaited them. And I'm sure there were many tests that aren't written down in the book of Daniel that awaited them. Some of the more extreme ones are written down. But they faced another test. So your past may be filled with ways that you have stepped out in faith, and yet the Lord may be calling you again to step out in faith, to take a stand out of conviction for his truth. We'll come back to this in a few moments. Now, in addition to being prepared to take a stand ahead of time, building up your godly habits and being prepared to take a stand against the world, Christians must be mindful of the sovereignty of God. Christians must be mindful of the sovereignty of God. Again, one of the great themes of this book. In fact, God's sovereignty should be a comfort to you when you do step out in faith, when you do take that step that is uncomfortable or that's scary. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over everything that happens. Matthew 10, verse 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God is sovereign over everything that happens. The Bible also teaches specifically that he is sovereign over the actions and lives of men and especially over the actions and lives of those in authority. Look at verse 9 of our current text. It says here that God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. That sounds like God, doesn't it? We can think back on the many ways that God has allowed his people to have favor in the sight of those who are in authority over them. It's God's way to have influence on those who are in authority. He is sovereign over those in authority. I think primarily of Joseph and how he received favor both from Potiphar and from Pharaoh. Yes, he was thrown in prison, but he constantly received favor from those whom he was around because of his faithfulness to God and his word. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he wishes. So God turns the king's heart in whatever direction he wants. Think of it as a garden hose. God holding a garden hose. There's a channel or a stream of water going through the hose. And with the flick of the wrist... He can change the direction 180 degrees from where it was going. And Proverbs said this is the way that God is sovereign over the hearts of kings. He can change the way of their heart in his hand as he changes the direction of a stream of water. Romans 13, 1b says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So think about the authorities in your life whether it's your husband or your boss or your parents or your governor or your president or whomever is authority in your life. Romans tells us that all those authorities that exist are established by God. That authority is established by God, even if it's an evil authority. 
even if it's an authority that is difficult to bear up under, that authority was established by God. And in many ways, it makes bearing up under the authority easier because we know we please God by submitting to that authority, even if that authority is not fair or if that authority doesn't have integrity. In fact, even more, it's a blessing to us if we submit to authority that is unfair or that lacks integrity because then our reward is in heaven as God has promised us. One of the reasons why we take comfort in God's sovereign power is because the Bible also teaches us about his power that it's wielded for the good of his children, that God wields his sovereign power for the good of his children. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And we know as fathers and mothers that we don't always give what our children ask for. Sometimes we give beyond what they ask for. Sometimes we give what they ask for, but we cause them to wait or perhaps to work for what we decide to give them. And sometimes we give it to them on the spot. But we desire to give good things to our children. We love our children and we want what's good for them, even if they don't always know what's good for them. How much more our Father in Heaven, who is perfect and knows exactly what's good for us, will give us those good things, even if at the time we don't seem to concur with him what would be the best for us. Nevertheless, we pray to him and he gives us exactly what's good for us as we are his children. This is reflected in a very well-known verse, Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. So God uses his sovereignty specifically for his children, for those who follow him. He uses it for their good. Again, even though often we don't recognize it as being good at the time. Now, keeping in mind the sovereignty of God, let's look how Daniel goes about acting on his conviction. It says in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So the first thing Daniel does is he goes to the commander of the officials and he asks permission. Verse 9, we've already looked at this. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And verse 10, here's the commander's response. The commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age. Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Daniel's request is denied by the commander of the officials. Now, in verse 9, it says that God granted Daniel favor in the eyes of the commander of the officials. But here, the commander of the officials tells him, no, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to withhold that food from you and give you Um, other food. So how is this favor in the eyes of the commander of the officials given by God? Well, it would seem that the favor that God gives Daniel is in the way that he was denied, in the way that his request was denied. If you think about it, it would be very similar to, if you're a parent, one of your children going over to a friend's house and saying to the parents who offer him something to eat for dinner, I'm not going to eat that. That's yucky. I don't want that. It would be an extreme insult to those parents. And remember, the king is giving the very best of his food to these youths. So by Daniel saying, not only that he doesn't want to eat it, but what does he say? He says that he does not want to defile himself. He does not want to defile himself, to make himself impure. He says that to the commander of the officials. Likely, in most circumstances, the commander of the officials would have him killed on the spot or at the very least thrown into prison for his insult to the king and to the king's gracious giving of the food. The people in that day and age saw the king as their provider, their provider of all things that they had. And it's an extreme insult to, um, to suggest that, that what the king gave is impure, much less that it would defile you. So God's graciousness in this case 
is in sparing Daniel's life when he takes his step of faith in front of the commander. In fact, the commander is almost apologetic. Not only is he, does he not kill Daniel, but he almost seems apologetic to Daniel. That's how much favor Daniel had in his eyes. He's basically saying, listen, I'm afraid of the king. If I give you this food and then it turns out you guys start looking scrawny, that's going to be my head. You know, I'm sorry. I'd, I'd love to, to grant this for you, but, you know, I'm too afraid. I can't, I can't do it. He's apologizing to Daniel, isn't he? This is a man who has complete control over Daniel's destiny. And God's favor has caused him to be in a state where he's apologizing for not being able to honor his request. So what does Daniel do? Well, he's just been told no. Yeah, he's been told no nicely, but he's been told no. Does he give up at this point? I mean, he could. Many times we're tempted to do that. We step out in faith, and at first God's initial answer or the answer we receive from somebody else or the first reaction is negative or there's a rejection. We think, oh, God's closed the door. I guess I must, must have misunderstood I'm, I'm retreating. I'm going back. I'm not going to continue stepping forward. No, that's not what Daniel does. He doesn't just give up and decide, well, I'll just have to suffer by eating the king's rich food. No, he decides to continue. He decides to persevere. He decides to be creative about seeking God's will. <clears throat> so what does he do? He goes to the overseer. This isn't the commander now. This is his direct overseer, not the commander's direct overseer, Daniel's direct overseer. So this is a man under the commander, but still over Daniel. He goes to his own um, direct overseer. It says here in verse 11, But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So this was an overseer, probably like a tutor or something of a small group of men. He said to this overseer, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel gets creative. Now, very likely, this creativity was spurred by the Spirit. Daniel is not a man who takes a step of faith or a leap of faith without knowing God's direction. So although scripture doesn't say this, and, and we don't know this for sure, very likely Daniel um, had indication from the Spirit that the Spirit would honor this request if he asked it of the overseer. Notice Daniel's tact in approaching the overseer. He allows the overseer to be discreet. So the overseer can do this and no one else will know. He can do what Daniel asks and he can do it in secret. He can sort of secretly give these guys the food that they want and withhold the king's choice food. And also, Daniel sort of gives him a back door. You know, if this thing isn't working out, if after 10 days you think we actually look worse, you know, the bets are off. That's fine. You know, I'm fine with that. Um, just give us a test. Test us for 10 days and see what happens, and then we'll take it from there. It's not a big thing. You know, we can fatten up in a few days if things don't look good, and we'll be ready for the king again. So he allows the overseer to be discreet and he allows the overseer to be able to back out of the deal. For us, it teaches us that even as we acknowledge God's sovereignty over the events of our lives, we also must be persistent and often creative rather than giving up at the first roadblock that we encounter. So we acknowledge that God is sovereign, but we also acknowledge that what he teaches is true and we must pursue that truth with a persistence. We must not be quick to give up. And often it calls for creativity, sometimes from the Spirit revealing to us the way, creativity to pursue our desire to please God. Now, with such reasonable terms, the overseer agrees to Daniel's offer. And what is the result? Well, we all know the result. We've read the result and many of us are familiar with this passage at the end of 10 days, verse 15, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. As opposed to today, I'm someone who would look healthy. Fatter meant healthier. It meant that you were strong. It meant that you had enough to eat. It meant that um, you had been fed well. And Daniel and Hananiah 
and Mishael and Azariah all appeared fatter, appeared healthier to the king, to the people. Even after such a short period of time, it was only ten days. Now this is truly a miracle from God. After ten days, the four of them not only looked better, respectively, but they looked better than all the other youths. They looked sleeker, they looked fatter, they looked healthier than all the other youths to which they were compared. How many people have you heard of that have eaten vegetables for 10 straight days and have gained weight? Vegetables and water. We're not talking drinking sodas or wine or caloric drinks. They refused the wine, remember? All they ate were vegetables. All they drank was water for 10 straight days. Now, it might be that that you might not lose weight on that diet. I think you probably would. But even if you don't lose weight, there likely wouldn't be a discernible change. But here it says that in the eyes of the overseer and the commanders, they had gained weight, they looked healthier, they looked fatter than all of the other youths that were compared to them. So what was the result? God honored their faithfulness. God honored their faithfulness. This teaches us that Christians must be mindful that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Christians must be mindful that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let's just briefly look at the places in this passage where God rewards their faithfulness. The first one is in verse 9. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander. Notice that God grants this favor immediately after Daniel makes up his mind and then acts upon that decision. Daniel purposes in his heart He goes to the commander and asks for permission, so he acts upon it. He steps out in faith, and God immediately rewards him by giving him favor in the eyes of the commander. We already read just a moment ago another reward that God gives them. He honors their step of faith by causing them to gain weight. Most of us don't see that as a blessing, but he causes them to gain weight and to look healthy in the eyes of the commander. That's a blessing from God. It's a reward from God. It's an honor from God to honor their faithfulness to him. But there's more. If we go a little bit beyond our text for this morning, verse 17 says, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So, yes, they had some of this intelligence and um, knowledge and understanding incipient. It was, it was present with them. The king recognized it as being there, but it says here that the actual knowledge and intelligence and wisdom that they received was a direct gift from the hand of God. He gives them a gift that they didn't ask for. Their desire was to honor God by taking a stand, by walking in faith, by stepping out in faith, and their request was, would you protect us in this if we take this step of faith? But God not only protected them, but he goes beyond. He gives them intelligence, wisdom, and understanding. And in fact, he gives Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. Even above and beyond that, look at verse 19. When the king talked with them, out of them all, not one, out of all the people that the king talked with, out of all the men, the young men that that were captured by the king, not one of them was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Remember, these are men, all of these magicians and conjurers were men that Nebuchadnezzar handpicked from all the nations he'd conquered. These were the wisest, the best. These were the most intelligent, the best looking. So... Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they're up against some pretty stiff competition. Okay, these are the the best from the whole surrounding area, and they're from the small little tribe of Judah, and they're up against some stiff competition. But not only do they surpass the intelligence, wisdom, and knowledge of all the others, but they surpass it by ten times, is what Scripture tells us. I don't know exactly how you measure being ten times more intelligent, although we have intelligence tests today, but scripture tells us they were ten times more intelligent, more wise than 
the other magicians and conjurers in the kingdom that the king had picked. So let's look back at what we learned from this passage. First of all, we learned from verse 8 that Christians must be prepared ahead of time to stand against the world. One of the commentaries I read put it like this. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah never sacrificed their inward conviction that they belong body and soul to a kingdom other than that of Babylon. They never sacrificed their inward conviction that they belong body and soul to a kingdom other than that of Babylon. Do you have that inward conviction? Do you have that conviction that your body and soul belong not to the United States of America, not to Bloomington, not to Indiana University, but to the kingdom of heaven? Do you have that conviction? If so, what are you doing in your life that shows that you have that conviction? Again, biblically speaking, it's not enough just to have that conviction, to have good, warm thoughts about being obedient to God. What are you doing in your life that shows that you have such a conviction? Now, remember, we talked a little bit about this before. Is the Spirit prompting you, maybe today, maybe recently, to step out in faith? to take a stand on something, maybe at work, or to step out in faith with a friend or family member? Is there something that you feel that God is telling you to make up your mind about, to purpose in your heart, to do for his honor and to obey his commands? I don't know. I don't know your hearts. The Lord knows your hearts. And the Lord, through his spirit, can reveal these things to your mind and to your heart. Maybe it has something to do with how you observe the Lord's Day that the Lord is pressing you to take a stand in. Maybe it has to do with the raising of your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Maybe the Lord is spurring you to take a stand in how you teach your children and how you raise them in what your habits are at home. Maybe it's related to integrity in your business or at school. Maybe you're to take a stand for the sake of integrity um, maybe it's against your boss. Maybe it's against a friend or coworker that you know has um, not had integrity in the decisions that they've made. Maybe you need to step out in faith with your money. If you're not tithing or you're not giving regularly to the work of God, maybe you need to begin to tithe. Maybe you need to begin to regularly give money to the work of God. Maybe you need to give more money to the work of God. Perhaps you need to have a stronger witness in the workplace or at school. This is probably one that all of us can be prompted by the Spirit to do. When you're at work, when you're with non-Christians, when you're with your non-Christian family or friends, do you ever mention God? Even in passing, do you mention God? Do you say, thank God for today? Do you say, praise God that such and such happened? Do you mention God in your relationships with non-Christians? Do you ever tell people that you'll pray for them This is a perfect opportunity to be a witness to God and to open doors. Someone who's going through an illness or some financial crisis or decision that they have to make, just a quick word. You can say, you know, I'll pray for you on that. And you can leave it at that. It can open doors for them to to come back and talk with you or to thank you for praying or even to mention answered prayer. Do you ever initiate spiritual conversations with others? For example, asking them what they believe. Or maybe giving a brief testimony about an answer to prayer in your life. You might say, you know, I I was going through a a situation very similar to that. And I prayed about it. And four months later, God answered my prayer. He's a God who delights in prayer. And I'd be happy to pray for you about that. Give a brief testimony about God's work in your life. It doesn't have to be a long testimony like you might give standing up in front of church. Just something quick about how God has changed your life, made your life different, how he's answered prayer, how he's made a difference for you. You might, just in passing, mention a proverb or some other biblical truth that you've observed in your own life or in in life in general that is true about God's creation or about God's work among men. Now, as God convicts you to step out in faith in any of these areas or in others that the Spirit might reveal to you, it is often intimidating It's often uncomfortable. It's often scary to do something. And we must think back again to another lesson. As a remedy 
to the temptation that we have to shrink back, to not step out, to take timid steps and then pull back, the remedy to that temptation is to keep in mind the sovereignty of God. Christians must be mindful of the sovereignty of God. The knowledge of God's sovereignty should give you courage to act and peace that nothing happens outside of his will and that his desire is for all things to work for good for his children, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. Also, as we step out in faith, we must be mindful that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Again, this gives us courage to step out in faith. That little phrase, a rewarder of those who seek him, some of you might recognize as coming from Hebrews. Hebrews 11.6, to be more specific. That verse, the whole verse, all of verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He who comes to God must believe that he is, in other words, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's impossible to please God without faith, is what Hebrews tells us. The book of Daniel describes how Daniel and his friends acted in faith time after time. In fact, in many ways, this verse from Hebrews sums up the story of Daniel. They know that it's impossible to please God without faith, so they have faith. And again, they don't have faith just in their heart. They have faith in their actions and their words. They step out in faith. And they step out because they know that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. They acted under the assumption that God would indeed reward them. We too are commanded by God in his word to believe that he is, to believe that he exists, and to know that without faith in his son Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, without faith in his son, it is impossible to please God. And like Daniel, we also must make up our mind. We must purpose in our heart. We must set our heart to live in obedience and faith, knowing that the ultimate reward that God will give us is our eternal reward. Let's pray.